up here, leading in that. Where's Pastor put all this stuff? There, there we go. You know, I go into some churches sometimes doing Gideon presentations, and there's no young people in them anymore, some of these rural towns. And I look out here, and I see these teenagers, and I know on Sunday nights we'll have up to 30 teenagers coming here from different schools for our youth. But all these little or elementary-age kids, and uh, our church is alive, and it's uh, it's exciting to see the new families that we've had come. Uh, I know the older I get and some of our Regulars that have been here for years, as God calls them home to glory, and they've always kind of sat in a certain pew, and you always wonder, well, who's going to come and sit in that pew now that they're in heaven? And God has blessed us that we've just had more families come in here, and we're just so excited that uh, our church is uh, alive. And uh, Pastor Bob, I mean, he's amazing, and I know a lot of reason some of you drive several miles to come is because he proclaims the true word of God and and. I've been in some churches that they're not hearing that. It's all a watered-down deal. and uh, So we need, we're really blessed that we have a pastor here. And uh, uh, I've, I've been thinking about him a lot this week as he waited so long to go have that service for his dad. And I'm just glad he got to finally go do that and uh, be with his family. Hey, I want to say one more thing before we start. Uh, I opened the Enid paper on Friday, and we don't take the... the paper copy anymore. We just look at it digitally. So when I say I opened the paper, I guess I did it digitally. But I was, it was so depressing. There's a couple of stories that were on there about one of our legislators in Oklahoma City that, uh, Jeff, what's that term? When you think you're not man or woman? Non-binary? Yeah. Not, she's, she's non, well, I can't say she. She, she calls herself they. And so I read that article, and I just thought, as pastors, we've talked about Jude, how things have just crept in. And, of course, that, that verse was into the church, but even into our state government now. And then I won't say her name, but the editor of the Enid paper now, the new one that's come back, and then she was had a big article in there about uh, these transgender girls, or boys that transgender to girls playing sports, she was kind of defending that, saying, well, we need to be real quick not to judge that deal. And I was just about to throw up in my mouth. And then I flip one more page, and there's Ruth Ann Replogles called them up there. And I don't know how many of you saw it, but I had to text her, or I left a message, and then she texted me back, and we texted back and forth. But Ruth Ann, I just want to say here in front of everybody, I would... I just admire you so much for sticking your neck out there. What our article is about was God calling us to be separate from the world. And we're, we're, we don't we don't do what the world does. And uh, well, I mean, it was an excellent article. We, I'll try to find a copy of that and put it down here on the bulletin board, a printed one, and uh, so y'all can uh, read what she said. But I, I'm glad you're here today. I wanted to be sure and compliment you on that. Okay, uh, if you're if you're sitting out there where y'all are, that minute hand moves very slowly. If you're up here talking, the minute hand moves very fastly, and so I better get rolling here. I had a couple little kids say, "We're getting out early today," and I said, "Well, we'll we we'll just see." But if we don't, you blame it. You take that up with the Holy Spirit because I prayed uh, that the Holy Spirit would uh, just put just use my mouth as a spokesperson. Here, I had somebody send me this this week. I wanted you all to see this. Evan's ready to put it up here. 
Did you all see this one? Kids are, today are soft. I died once when I was five and my mom made me walk it off. It has these kids crawling all over this jungle gym. It looks like it's about 20 feet tall. I don't see any teachers out there telling them to get off of it. Nobody's got on a helmet. And I'm just like, man, that, that's a bygone error, isn't it? Even kids today, they're trampolines. Have the walls around them and kids have helmets on when they jump on them and... Uh, Ed, can you relate to any of that? Did you ever find a jungle gym that cool? Well, kids, I want to ask you. How about you guys? If I was saying, if I made that statement, would that be true? Could I have died and walked it off? No. Say no. Thank you. No. Okay, Evan, you can take it off there. Nobody walks off death, do they? And you know what? Pastor could probably take that slide and preach for a year. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he could, maybe two years. Uh, obviously, he could say Jesus was the only one that ever, after being in the grave, walked it off or whatever. But obviously, we don't, and it kind of reminds us that uh, for all of us, unless the rapture comes, which uh, I know some people that are actually praying for that, and the older I get, uh, it'd be all right with me. I remember when I was a kid and our pastor would close the service on Sunday night, and he'd say, well, Lord willing... We'll see you back here next Sunday. And I was like, or he said, if the rapture doesn't happen, I was going, hey, i got three ball games this week. I don't want to. But you know what? Who cares about that anymore when you get my age? Hey, uh, okay, if you'll take this. Now, I'm, obviously, I'm not a preacher. Um, I'm a teacher, and I always try to have something to hand out. When I went even into the jail there at Garfield County, those guys would always say, when I'd hand them something, they're just bored to death. And so they'd love to have something to read. And that's why I even got something on the back of that green page. Because they would go, well, why didn't you put something on here? So I learned, don't ever leave a blank page wasted. Put something on there for them to uh, read. But here we go. You guys are going to be a little surprised because you're thinking, okay, we won't be in Jude 4 today, but we're going to briefly touch on it. Okay, so flip the pink page or peach color or whatever you call that to the white one. Thank you, girls, for handing these out to everybody, and I hope you all have one there. Because we're going to do a lot of reading today. Okay, uh, if my voice plays out, Bill's my backup. He's going to come up and finish up for me. He's in the bullpen warmed up. Or Ed, but since Ed had a procedure, we may let him off the hook. Okay. Okay, here we go. Jude 4. You guys know this verse by now. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I don't know how many weeks we've been on that verse. Seven, I think. Maybe it's longer than that. Maybe some of you know exactly. But we're going to talk about that today because I don't know that any one verse in the Bible in recent years for me has just grabbed me. And at first, that, it, it, it wasn't much, but we'll get into that here in just a little bit. Okay, so how many of you think you have a full grasp of God's grace? Understand it totally. You know, if somebody asked me, I would kind of stutter and stammer, and I'd come up with something, you know, like grace is uh, getting something you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something you deserve, or something. But I don't know that I could really say that. And I remembered reading People have passed books down to me over the years that I've read. They said, boy, you ought to really read this. And uh, on this uh, peach-colored paper, this front page, 
We're going to read some of these excerpts from uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. I've had that book, I don't know how many years, but now keep this in mind when we read through this. This was published in 1974. And so you think 48 years, 48 years have uh, passed, and how much worse it is today than it was when he wrote this in 1973. And even how much our culture has changed, the language he used, we're going to kind of giggle at that because he, he wouldn't even use words like we do today. You guys that haven't been alive as long as uh, I have and some others in here have just seen such a change in our culture and in our country, and it's not for the better, you know, in our lifetime. All right, let's, let's read through this, and I, I don't know what that first one, we're not starting off very good, because I kept thinking, is that a misprint in this book? Did one of the proofreaders miss this? The moral ill desert of man. I don't think those words have ever come out of my mouth in a sentence before. The moral ill desert. I kept thinking, that's got to be a morality desert or something. I don't know, but that's that's what was in there, so I put it. Okay, let's read through this here real quickly, and that's why I wanted you to have that in front of you so you could follow. Modern man, conscious of his tremendous scientific achievements in recent years, naturally inclines to a high opinion of himself. This was 1973. Like four years after we landed a man on the moon. So just think of all the things that man has got to boast about today that's happened since this was written. He views material wealth as in any case more important than moral character. Now we're talking about the average guy. I'm not talking about you, hopefully. And in the moral realm, he is resolutely kind to himself, treating small virtues as compensating for great vices, and refusing to take seriously the idea that, morally speaking, there is anything much wrong with him. He tends to dismiss a bad conscience in himself and in others as an unhealthy psychological freak, a sign of disease and mental aberration, rather than an index of moral reality. For modern man is convinced that despite all of his little I don't know if I've ever used this word either. Picadillos, morally, or uh, drinking, gambling. I thought that was interesting. Reckless driving. He put that in there in his list. How about distracted driving today, maybe? Uh, fiddling around. He wouldn't even say the word, would he? Black and white lies. Sharp practice in trading. Dirty reading. Of course, today we'd put pornography in there. And what have you, he is at heart a thoroughly good fellow. That was despite all of those. Then as pagans do, and modern man's heart is pagan, make no mistake about that, he imagines God as a magnified image of himself and assumes that God shares his own complacency about himself. The thought, okay, here we go. The thought of himself as a creature fallen from God's image, a rebel against God's rule, guilty and unclean in God's sight, fit only for God's condemnation, never enters his head. Does that not sum up the society or the culture that we live in that most people think, eh, I'm not so bad? 
you know, I'm not as bad as that guy, little point, or I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, still, I'm still, I'm moral. I've, uh, over the years, uh, well, I better be real careful what I say, but I've worked with some people that, that morally they're pretty good people, but they, they have no sense that they're lost. And you guys, I'm sure you guys know people like that too. Okay, let's go to the second one. Well, that minute hand is flying here. Okay, now I know retribution has got to be the root word here, but I think you would probably say that retributive justice of God. Just saying retributive. Peggy, how do you say that word? You're you're you and you're thin. You guys are the writers. Okay, well, we we won't worry about it. Well, let's just go on. Hope hope it doesn't come up again. Modern man modern man's way is to turn a blind eye. To all wrongdoing, oh, this guy must have been watching the news. No, wait, this was 1974. What would he say today? Modern man's ways is to turn a blind eye to all wrongdoing as long as he safely can. He tolerates it in others, feeling that there, but for the accident of circumstance, goes he. Parents hesitate to correct their children and teachers to punish their pupils and the public puts up with vandalism and antisocial behavior of all sorts with scarcely a murmur. Did you know there's an online app now for looting? You can loot at home. Not really. That's Babylon B. But uh, <laughs> looting, I mean, when did that become acceptable in the United States? That those guys don't get punny. The accepted maximum seems to be as long as evil can be ignored, it should be. One should only punish as a last resort and then only so far as necessary to prevent the evil having too grievous social consequences. Willingness to tolerate and indulge evil up to the limit is seen as a virtue, while living by fixed principles of right and wrong is censored by some as dutifully moral. I wouldn't be surprised if Ruth Ann didn't get some comments on her deal. Hey, who are you to make moral judgments about me? And I don't think she cares. I saw her just shrug her shoulder. In our pagan way, we take it for granted that God feels as we do. Oh, I couldn't believe that one when I read it. In our pagan way, we take it for granted that God feels as we do. The idea that retribution might be the moral law of God's world and an expression of his holy character seems to modern man quite fantastic. I thought that ought to have been fanatic, but I don't know. Those who uphold it find themselves accused of projecting onto God their own pathological impulses of rage and vindictiveness. Yet the Bible insists throughout that this world which God and his goodness has made is a moral world in which retribution is as basic a fact as breathing. How many people I don't know I've talked to that just they just want to say God is love, God is love, God is love. God is going to be the judge someday, and, uh, and and they don't want to hear that side of God. God is the judge of all the earth, and he will do right, vindicating the innocent, if such there be, but punishing, in the Bible phrase, visiting their sins upon lawbreakers. That's Genesis 18.25. God is not true to himself unless he punishes sin. 
Anybody disagree with that one? Take it up with Ed. He's got the cane, and he'll set you straight. I'm going to read that one again. God is not true to himself unless he punishes sin. And unless no one or one knows and feels the truth of this fact, that wrongdoers have no natural hope of anything from God, but retributive judgment on one can never share the biblical faith and divine grace. People don't understand that we're helpless. We're hopeless without Christ. We're bankrupt. And most people in our world today, they go, we're really not that bad. You know, they don't want to see themselves the, the uh, total depravity of man. There's that verse right there, Genesis 18.25. This is when Abraham was bargaining with God. How many righteous people you have to find in uh, Sodom before you torch it? And Abraham said to God, Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Okay, the wicked are going to be punished. Uh, to the next page. I better read faster. The spiritual impotence of man. Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People has been almost a modern Bible, and a whole technique of business relations has been built up in recent years on the principle of putting the other man in a position where he cannot decently say no. This has confirmed modern man in the faith which has animated pagan religion ever since there was such a thing, namely the belief that we can repair our own relationship with God by putting God in a position where he cannot say no anymore. I don't know how many people I've heard over the years say, I can't wait to get in heaven. I'm going to shake my finger at God's face and tell him how unfair he was about something. And I said, no, you're not. That will never happen. Ancient pagans thought to do this by multiplying gifts and sacrifices. Modern pagans seek to do it by churchmanship and morality. Conceding that they are not perfect, they still have no doubt that respectability henceforth will guarantee God's acceptance of them in the end. Whatever they may have done in the past... But the Bible position is stated by Toplady, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, declares Paul, Romans 3.20. To mend our own relationship with God... Regaining God's favor. Okay, here we go. Here's the heart of the whole deal today. I'm going to start it over. To mend our own relationship with God, regaining God's favor after having once lost it, beyond the power of any of is beyond the power of any of us. And one must see and bow to this before one can share the biblical faith in God's grace. Okay, once we've sinned that first time first time that we sinned and we all admit that we're sinners we're helpless now thank goodness that God is a loving and merciful God and a gracious God that he provided a means to be reconciled back to him and then number four the sovereign freedom of God ancient paganism thought of each God as bound to his worshipers 
by bonds of self-interest because he depended on their service, services and gifts for his welfare. Modern paganism has at the back of its mind a similar feeling that God is somehow obliged to love and help us, little though we deserve it. This was a feeling voiced by the French freethinker who died muttering, God will forgive, that's his job. But this feeling is not well-founded. The God of the Bible does not depend on his human creatures for his well-being. Nor now that we have sinned is he bound to show us favor. Those two passages there, that Psalms and Acts, they're right down there at the bottom. Let's drop down there and read them real quickly. Psalms 58 through 12. God says, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. You know what, when that offering plate back there, and I think most of us know that, when we go by there and we put offering in that, that wasn't our money. We're just giving back a portion. And God doesn't ask for all of it back. We just put in a portion of what he's given us. If you own land, if you own what we say, well, that's my land. Well, you're a steward of the land. It's God. That cattle out there in your field. I feel blessed I get to do something I really like and just have cattle. And I'll sit out there and watch them graze and I just go, thank you, Lord for giving me this opportunity that so many people in the world don't have to sit right out here in your creation and be right out here in the middle of it. Let's go back to the text there. Only when it is seen that what decides each man's destiny is whether or not God resolves to save him from his sins and that this is a decision which God need not make in any case, can one begin to grasp the biblical view of grace. Y'all, I don't know if this helped or not, but when I read that, I just thought, I think I have a little bit better understanding than grace. There's nothing I can do to earn it. It's uh, freely given to me only by the grace of God. Okay, now go, go back to that white page, that first white page examining God's call to holy living. Okay, and I'm just going to paraphrase here a little bit, but that first Sunday that pastor preached, on this verse, and he talked about turns grace of God into licentiousness. And Sid Lakin and I talk about this all the time about grace abusers, people that abuse grace. They have the wrong. They just say, "Oh, God will forgive me," kind of like that guy we just read about on the front page. And uh, and I and I really did. I was just sitting there going, "Oh yeah, Pastor, I wish I know some people. I wish were here to hear that." about being grace abusers. But the more weeks that he preached on that and the more I sat out there in my pickup and thought about that, I started looking inwardly and thinking, am I an abuser of grace? You know, we had a study uh, in our Wednesday night group uh, back a few months ago, Tom, uh, called Respectable Sins. That Those two words shouldn't even go together, should they? And, and it wasn't condoning it. It was saying, hey, a lot of these sins that we think are respectable as Christians, 
like pride and anger and, you know, things like that. that we, we're not real worried about them. I mean, we may be convicted about them at times, but we, we see those as, uh, that probably doesn't bother God too much. And uh, after going through that study, I was just like, golly, every, even those sins of your mind, your thoughts. I mean, we don't have to be out here looting or murdering or, you know, the sins that are right there in the Ten Commandments. It's the sins of the heart. If we're going to be completely holy, we've got to take care of those too. So I just kept looking looking at myself and thinking, what what are some of those little sins that I still need to be addressing that are not pleasing to God that I would be called a, an abuser of His grace? You know, we rock along there a little bit and then we say, okay, God, forgive me. But sometimes I think that's kind of flippant if we willfully sin. You know, premeditated sin. Yeah, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I think that's what these verses we're going to talk about are going to uh, uh, address. And, and the verses that came to me made me really look inwardly. Let's read them there. Luke 6, 41 and 42. You guys all know this one. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. You know, sometimes we're real, we'll look at other people and we can see their sinfulness, but we don't see it in ourselves. And uh, that... That verse, uh, those verses just really made me start examining my life. Uh, I, I can't help but think about my grand, great-grandfather. My dad one time told me here in his, in his last years of his life, we were talking about holiness, and he said uh, that he thought his grandfather, which obviously would be my great-grandfather, Grandfather George, uh, he said that's probably the, when I think of the holy person, I think of him. And I remember when he said that, I thought, well, yeah, that had to be easier for people back then. I called my older brother. He's, he has all the family history. And I said, hey, when was Grandpa George born? He said, 1869, just four years after the Civil War was over. And he died in 1963. He was 94 years old. And I'm thinking, okay, it surely was easier back then, wasn't it? I mean, no television, no smutty movies, no crazy lyrics to music. No internet that you hold right there in your hand. I mean, Satan didn't seem to have as many tools in his toolbox back then. But you know what else he did besides wasting hours watching, entertaining himself, watching TV? I went down there and looked. He died when I was 10. His house was right there. It's where Andrew lives now, and Bonines live up there. And I was up there with seeing Grandma Mildred, and she said, Why don't you go down there and see your great-grandpa? We went down there, and we looked in the window to see if he's awake because he slept on a little day bed right there by the by the window. And he was sitting. There's a famous picture of a man, a white-haired man, sitting there at a table with a loaf of bread, and his Bible's open, and he's praying. I, I bet you all have seen that a lot. I see a lot of heads nodding. That's who I always think of when I see that because that's what he was doing. Right in the middle of the day, now he was retired, 
so he didn't have to be at a job. It'd be hard for some of you to just stop in the middle of the day and do that. But he was sitting there at that table in his dining room, had his Bible open, and he was just spending time with the Lord. And I just thought, well, how much easier would that have been? So even though it was easier then, maybe, than today, does that still let us off the hook? You don't see an asterisk anywhere in your Bible that says, unless you live in uh, the 21st century, you don't have to be holy. No. God would never say that. God's eternal. God says, I don't change. The demand for holiness was the same all through. You know, uh, I told Linda I was going to share this today. Some things that wouldn't have bothered me, worldliness, when I was 20 or 30, are bothering me now. And I think that's part of that gradual sanctification that we, as we walk with the Lord all those years. But I remember at an annual meeting in here one night, Don Hayes was the chairman of the deacon board at that time, I think, and he was up here doing the meeting. And right to the end of the service, now this is, if you all don't know, this is Linda's husband that passed away in 2000. And uh, so this might have been four or five years ago, or before that, in the late 90s. And he said, boy, he said, I I don't know about you all, but I've really been convicted of sin in my life. And I was sitting right there about where Sid was. I still remember that. And I just kind of went, Don Hayes? I just thought, Don Hayes, you know, he's going to confess some sin to the whole group here. And you know what it was? Because, I mean, everybody just... And he goes... Yeah, the Lord has really convicted me here lately. He said, uh, and I, I just, what is he going to say? And he goes, I've just been watching that WWF wrestling at night. And I just think that's probably not, I probably shouldn't be doing that. W, I think it's WWE wrestling today. I don't know. I think they've changed the name of them. The, the guys that come out and the phony wrestling and uh, the guys make a lot of money off of He was convicted that that was hindering his spiritual life. you remember that, Linda, when he said that? Dale, do you remember that? that? I don't know why that just burned in my mind. And I thought, I watch that all the time. That doesn't bother me. <laughs> and I was just like, I wonder why that's bothering Dawn. You know what? I've got to that point now. We used to watch Family Feud back when it was kind of wholesome. But anymore, we don't even watch it. Because they always have a question in there trying to make you say something to win the money that's pretty pretty bad. And and you know what? That, that, I don't think that would have bothered me 20 years ago, but that bothers the heck out of me today. So there's all, there's, we got 300 channels and we watch about five of them because we just can't find uh, stuff on there that we think is, is uh, good for us to watch. Okay, let's uh, let's go on here. Uh, right there in the middle of that page. It says, A lie Satan has been whispering in our ears since the beginning of time. Obedience to God leads to misery. Many assume that the freedom to do what we want leads to happiness, while the responsibility to obey God leads to unhappiness. In an attempt to rescue grace from legalists, we unwittingly delivered it into the hands of libertarians who insist that grace exempts us from any standard of conduct. Those are not my words. I forgot to footnote those. 
That came out of John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. Those are John Piper's words. I'm not that eloquent to write something like that. And I want to give credit where it came from. Who insists grace exempts us from any standard of conduct. Well, okay, let's move here real quick. Okay. In Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then almost 1,000 years later, God commanded to the Israelites to be holy uh, in Malachi 3, 6. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. God never changes, does He? Never. So just because our culture changes and we have people that condone sin and say, well, that's okay now. We've kind of evolved or uh, we, we know better than God. That, that is so, uh, that is just so wrong. Uh, okay, let's go. Let's go to the back of that page and read some of these uh, verses. There's eight passages here. I mean, you guys are going to think of a passage and you go, I wonder why Steve didn't put this one in there. Because I know there's a lot of you that have memorized a lot of Scripture. Or you'll know enough of a verse like I do that I can go get a concordance out and go find it. But let's just read some of these. If you say, well, that was Old Testament, that was the Old Covenant. Under grace, the New Testament, we're, we're covered by grace. We, we don't have any moral conduct. And uh, I would say, no, Just here's, here's some verses. I don't know if we'll get through them all. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans six fifteen through 18. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? But may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience... You're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Y'all understand that? You're either going to be a slave. We don't like that term. That has a very negative contact. You're either going to be a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin. There's no middle ground. Okay, one of the two when you read this passage. But thanks to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, my mom told me when I was a little kid on these next couple passages, she said, don't be calling people liars. But we're going to see where John had no problem doing that. Okay, let's read that First Peter one first. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here we go. Here's the two John ones. First one's not quite as bad. The second one's pretty blunt. First John 1, 5, and 6. And this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. All right, here we go. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if, if, that's a big word there, if. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, 
cleanses us from all sin. Okay, this may be the last one that we get to. Then we'll have to move on. First John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar. I don't know how you can say it any plainer than that. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as He walked. So our our goal is to be Christ-like in everything that we do. And there's a couple more uh, there that... uh, uh, you guys can go ahead and read, but we just need to uh, keep going. I'll flip over then to uh, that green page. Okay, before we start on that, I just want to say, today, my goal is not to make anybody doubt their salvation. I mean, if you're doing it right, that's one of the pillars of our church, our doctrinal statement of faith. We believe in the uh, eternal security. If you're doing it right. If you're a grace abuser, I'm saying you better check yourself out. You better give a, get a hard look. And I don't mean something that happens just to everyone, but if you practice, when I read, the, well, we didn't read that, we skipped it. Let's go back. We didn't read the one about practicing sin, did we? Let's go, go back to 1 John 3, 9 through 10. No one who is born of God practices sin. You all that have been on ball teams, when you practice, you do stuff over and over. Repeat it. Repetitive. You just keep doing it. Taking shots from there or, you know, trying to hit the fastball off the jugs pitching machine or whatever. Okay? No one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So I've been convicted, and I just want you all, you probably already have, but if you've missed some of these sermons of pastors and you've had to miss and maybe you're here for the first or second time, it's just been really convicting to me to to not just look and say, well, I think that guy abuses grace and I think this guy abuses grace, but just turn that inward and just uh, check out your own life because there's no doubt New Testament called to be holy is there. It's not just an Old Testament term. Okay, I've got one more thing I want you to read. Uh, Mike and Lark's uh, oldest son, uh, Chris, uh, goes to First Baptist Church in Dallas. We're going to talk about his uh, pastor. Right, here we go on the, on the green sheet. Robert Jeffress, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas and author of the book Grace Gone Wild, had this to say. Grace provides us with a new and superior incentive for obedience. Under the Old Covenant, you were obedient because you wanted to maintain the law. Under new, the New Covenant, here's what the point he's making. It's superior to the old, to the, uh, the old standard of the law. We no longer have to fear the possibility of eternal separation from God. That issue has been settled. No condemnation awaits those of us who belong to Christ. Romans 8.1 so why should we care about pleasing Him? Okay, what is our motivation to please Him? 
an even more powerful motivation for obedience that the threat of hell that, than the threat of hell is the debt of gratitude we owe our Savior for all He has done for us. You know what? I was right up here in front. The singing was amazing this morning. Guys, thank you for leading. those songs that you all picked. Just tremendous worshipful song. This is a big deal what we get to come and do every Sunday, isn't it? When we weren't getting to do it, we, we were really missing, weren't we? But to get to come in here with, I don't know how many people here, probably 90 or 100, and come in here as brothers and sisters in Christ and lift our worship, as only Daryl Ferguson, I wish he'd put that on paper for me, that he can say what a big deal that is for us to come together and lift our voices in song and worship, and it, it goes up to God's ears. Okay, here we go. The duty to obey and the desire to obey intersect at the cross of Jesus Christ. I thought that was a pretty profound statement. And here's a few verses, and then we're going to have to wrap it up. Isaiah 53, 5-6. Now, these are verses to uh, just warm your heart to what Christ did for us. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Okay, when I, when I finish the screen page, we're going to watch just a short little video. Parents, I just want to warn you, there's scenes in it while this song plays that are very graphic. There's scenes off of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. So if you have some little ones that are sitting by you, I don't know if you want to just put your hand over their eyes or take them out. I hate for you all to miss it. Because what I want you to leave here today is just an image burned in your mind. I know some of us have images that are not wholesome, burned in our mind from something we might have looked at years ago. But I want you to have some fuel to just uh, that you can remember this and think about uh, the desire to obey, uh, the gratitude. So we're going to watch something here for a minute. I'll tell you once more right before we do it. And I, I would say... I don't know what age. You guys be the judge of that. You may want to turn them around there and make them face backward. But it's not. It's something you need to see, you adult. And it's been several years since I watched Passion of the Christ that I remember what a profound effect that had on me. What Jesus did for me, came down from heaven, took on flesh, and then they just ripped the flesh off of him when they scourged him. Um Okay, we're going to skip one there, but Second uh, Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't know what pastor said it, but out in the column in my Bible, I have the heart of the gospel written right beside that verse. And then First Peter 2.24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Okay, so I'm going to tell Evan, and he's going to put it up here on the screen. And then, y'all, or y'all, y'all have the closing song, Jack? Okay. Uh, Noah, would you close in prayer after your last song, please? And thank you again, guys, for coming today, and Shy for reading that passage. And Okay, so uh, 
I hope you're humming this song or learn the words to it and uh, might help you uh, just remember what Christ did for us.
just going to sing this chorus two times.